Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This Advent season, we've journeyed through looking at, the, looking at four of the women who are named in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, chapter 1. First, we saw Tamar, then Rahab, then Ruth, and I hope that you've enjoyed going through the life of these women and, and seeing how their lives point to Jesus. Uh, now, do note that we see Bathsheba mentioned in Matthew 1, which we've left out just for time. And this week, we turn to Mary, the mother of Jesus. I've titled this message, Mary, Faith in God's Promises. My wife did prefer my other title, though, which was Mary, she knew. But um, <laughs> as we come to this familiar story this morning, I think we sometimes can have a tendency to flatten someone like Mary into, as someone just entirely superhuman. But I don't think that that's what we're intended to see as we read through Luke 1. Rather, this account is given to us precisely so that we can see how ordinary Mary really is. And then so we can give the, all the glory to God when we read how he uses ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. In this passage, we see how Mary's faith grows with each time that she speaks. And my prayer this morning is that we will see how God uses ordinary people as he goes about the work of being faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, stir up in us faith in your work in us and all that you can do through us. Father, help us to see and worship this morning through your word. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we tackle this passage this morning bit by bit to get some of the details of the story, and then we're going to step back and look at a few takeaways for us. So Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke opens his gospel account telling these parallel stories of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And Luke writes them in such a way that he intentionally compares and contrasts the two stories for the reader. And so by the way that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the gospel, we're supposed to see the unity of the mission, but also see the difference highlighted. 
And of course, ultimately, we see that John the Baptist's work is going to be a work preparing the way for Jesus, who's the far greater of the two. For example, in coming to Zechariah in the temple at Jerusalem, the angel goes to a person of high status, an older male and a priest, and Gabriel meets Zechariah in a holy place, the temple, in the holy city, Jerusalem. And that announcement to Zechariah came as an answer to their prayers. And in many ways, this is how we would expect the birth of Jesus the Messiah to come about, right? Announced in the temple to a priest's family and being born into a family of some status in Judea near Jerusalem. But of course, that isn't the case, as we see in our text. The Messiah's birth is announced by Gabriel in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. And likewise, it's the kind of city that has to be described to people with other geographical landmarks, or just no one would know where you were talking about. It's sort of like Hushton in that respect, okay? I speak to other pastors from Atlanta, and uh, I tell them that we're planting a church in Hushton, and they're like, Hushton, is that near Brazelton? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're, that's, that's it. We'll just go with that. So even in the text here, though, he has to say it's a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Going on, Galilee wasn't the hotbed of Jewish faithfulness. It's surrounded by other nations, and therefore Galilee was susceptible to their influence. In John 7, the people were astonished that a prophet could arise from Galilee. In John 1, Nathaniel wonders, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Further, Gabriel comes to a person of nearly no status in the culture, where Zechariah, again, was an older male, a priest, and therefore well-connected, marries a young female, likely in, even in her teen years. Gabriel comes, as Gabriel comes to Mary, he greets her, announcing that the Lord's grace, his favor, is upon her. And notice Mary's response. It says specifically that Mary was troubled at what Gabriel said. We're used to angels coming and people being afraid, but this says specifically that Mary was troubled at what he said. Not just merely his presence, but his message. And Gabriel goes on seeking to reassure her while giving the unbelievable, spectacular announcement in no uncertain terms. Okay, the language he uses is rife with allusions to the Old Testament so that what he is announcing is clear. He's saying, you are going to give birth to the promised Messiah. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. This calls back to the words of Isaiah in chapter 7. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is a clear reference to the divinity of the child to be born. Zechariah is told that John the Baptist will be great before the Lord, but here, Jesus will be simply great with no other qualifiers given, which just ratchets up the greatness. Further, John will be called prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is son of the Most High. And the 
Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a clear allusion to the covenant as, as told to David in 2 Samuel 7. And it's been reiterated many times after. So if Mary hasn't picked up on the message yet, she certainly does now by the time he's saying this. The faithful Jew, well-versed in the scriptures, would know exactly what these words mean. And as we'll see in her song, Mary shows that she does know her Bible well. So in response to this wonderful, amazing announcement, Mary does have one question. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Before Zechariah, in the prior account, Zechariah had demanded certainty and he had demanded of Gabriel a sign. And then Gabriel proclaimed a sign to Zechariah, Zechariah would be unable to speak. However, here Mary's simply perplexed. Hers is a faith seeking understanding because she just knows how the world works. And to her, Gabriel gives more explanation. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel explains that Mary will conceive by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and not by the normal means. Because this this is no normal child, this child is both fully God and fully human. And then, while Mary didn't ask for a sign, God is gracious to give her confirmation anyway. I love how One author put this, saying, this is so typical of God. Again and again we catch him, as it were, stooping down and saying to his servants, here, let me see if I can give you something to help you believe this. Gabriel says that Mary has a relative, literally a kinswoman, who has also been visited by Gabriel. And though a lesser miracle, she also has conceived And then the angel Gabriel sums it all up nicely, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then again, we see what Mary said. As her humble perplexity has been graciously rewarded and her faith stair steps up, growing like a snowball. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What humility. Okay, what submission. We're not given an exact timeline on how this fits in with Matthew's account of these events. But from Matthew's account, we know that Joseph pondered quietly divorcing Mary before an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Likewise, we know that Mary's story of her conception is going to be very difficult for others to believe. It seems even that Jesus himself was jeered for this during his own lifetime in John chapter 8. 
So don't miss this. Mary here offers a simple statement of submission to God's will, but that doesn't mean that the, the road ahead is going to be easy. It just means that she is submitted to being the Lord's servant. Verse 38, and the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary's faith, here we see Mary's faith, stirs her to action. As seemingly very soon after this visit from Gabriel, she arose and went with haste to visit Elizabeth. And I think it's worth noting that we really don't know, we don't necessarily have an indication whether Elizabeth and Mary were very well acquainted. For one, they were likely not very close because they lived a very good distance from each other, probably a three or four day journey away. But nonetheless, Mary arose and went. And immediately upon meeting the older relative Elizabeth, Mary receives confirmation. John the Baptist leaps in her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the spirit to share a word of encouragement to Mary, confirming that Mary is to be the mother of the Lord. In verse 45, Elizabeth affirms Mary's faith in all of this. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her from the Lord. Now at this confirmation, Mary's faith finds its fullest expression as she's grown from how can this be to let it be, and then now it erupts in full-blown praise. Verse 46 through 56, just hear Mary's song of praise to the Lord for all that the Lord is doing in her. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. For time, we won't unpack all the treasures of her song, but do note this. Mary's song begins with just a, a 
the first two lines saying effectively the same thing, exalting God. Then it erupts in thanksgiving for the grace shown to Mary personally. And then it broadens to God's wonderful, just attributes before finally rejoicing in his faithfulness to his promises. All of it steeped in allusions and echoes of her scriptures. This is where we see that Mary knew her Bible. Note also how she declares this work as if it's already done. That's how much her faith in what God is going to do has grown. I think Charles Spurgeon's words on Mary's song here are both convicting and encouraging. Hear these words from Charles Spurgeon. She sang of mercies which were not yet visible to her. She had with gladness beheld the king of glory in her own heart. Although the promised child was not yet born, so with exulting faith she sings, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Brothers, there are some of you who cannot even sing over a mercy when it is born. But here is a woman who sings over an unborn mercy. Oh, what a faith is this. If you have like precious faith, what a joy it will give to your lives. Is there nothing to sing about today? Then borrow a song from tomorrow. Sing of what is yet to be. Is this world dreary? Then think of the next. Is all around you dark? Then look upward where they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. Yet a little while, and we, not, and we know not how short that little while will be. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And then it says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let me give you four takeaways we see in this account with Mary. Number one, God uses ordinary people. The most extraordinary thing about Mary is that there's really nothing extraordinary about Mary. No status, not from the right neighborhood, and so on. Even Gabriel's words indicate that she's the recipient of favor, not that something about her earned such a privileged place in God's grand story of redemption. But God chooses ordinary people to work through so that he receives the glory for it. But second, and corollary to the first, ordinary people must submit to him. As another author put it, God works through faithful humans who trust his power to bring his promises to fulfillment and who yield themselves to his control. Twice we see Mary refer to herself as a servant. And multiple folks would remark that this word servant is probably too high of a translation. It's probably, probably better translated with the more lowly connotation of slave, as the NASB does with bond slave. We see the same word used repeatedly by Paul as one of his favorite ways of referring to himself in the letters. But here's, here's the posture, though. Complete surrender. Whatever you want from me, Lord, I'm here for you and your glory. I'm not living for my kingdom, my glory, my comfort. Rather, I'm all in believing that the baby in the manger, God in the flesh, inaugurated a better kingdom. 
And I'm pouring my life out in faith, believing that his kingdom is worth it all. Church, listen, you're, you're not going to play as big of a role in God's story as Mary. But we all do have a role to play. And we see in the life of Mary that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. Mary was called to give birth to our Savior. We're called to live all of our lives to give glory to our Savior. And God uses profoundly ordinary people who are submitted to him and empowered by his spirit to do that. This past week, our uh, brother Dan posted in Church Center app sharing of 57 recent baptisms among the Malayali people in Papua New Guinea. And if you weren't with us at New Branch, you missed part of that context because for Almost four years, Chad and Martha Earl and their teammates worked to learn the Malayali language and culture to the point where they could produce for the Malayali people a written alphabet. Their team then had to spend time teaching the tribe how to read the alphabet that they'd produced. Then approximately a year ago, the team began teaching the gospel message from Genesis through Resurrection. This is the first time that the gospel had ever been proclaimed to the Malayali people, and many responded in faith. So these baptisms that were shared with you were the first Malayali converts ever. The recent baptism service was the culmination of ongoing teaching and then meeting with each person who responded to confirm their testimony so that Praise God, there's now a church in the Malayali tribe where previously there was no church. Here's the thing. Chad and Martha Earl, their teammates, profoundly ordinary believers who submitted themselves to God's call on their life and were empowered by his spirit through years and years of difficult labor so that God could do an extraordinary work through them. You say, yeah, sure, but that's not God's call on my life. Maybe not. Two things. One, ordinary missionaries like that can't go without ordinary people like us who submit our lives to God's mission and give generously that they might go. Number two, I'm not for a second meaning to imply that you have to leave home to submit to him. I assume most of us are called to be right here. But I am saying that God uses ordinary people submitted to him to do his work. This is familiar to us, but I think it's a helpful reminder just of who we long to be. Acts chapter 11, ordinary believers scattered by persecution in Jerusalem, and they came to Antioch to proclaim the gospel. God worked through those ordinary believers to establish the work at Antioch as a strong and healthy base for the gospel going to the Gentiles. And we don't even know their names. We don't even know the names of the ordinary people used by him to establish this great work that would become the sending church for Paul's missionary journeys, started by ordinary people submitted to him and empowered by his spirit. By God's grace, and if the, the Lord tarries, I pray that 50 years from now, even 100 years from now, if someone drives, or maybe we're flying by then, but if someone flies through West Jackson County, I pray that there's an Antioch church still here 
still holding out the gospel, still making disciples, and still a little embassy of his kingdom. That's not promised to us, but it is my prayer. And that would be an extraordinary work done through ordinary people like you and I. And for that to be the case, ordinary people like you and I must submit our lives to do the extraordinary, Holy Spirit-empowered work of building one another up and of being faithful witnesses to those around who don't understand why we're celebrating the wonderful, gracious miracle of a baby in the manger. Just want to ask, what might he do through you and I if we simply look upon his glory and commit our lives to be bond slaves for his kingdom? Third, that we see, faith grows by exercising faith. We can see in these three scenes how Mary's faith just snowballs and grows as she submits to it. How can this be? Grows to let it be, and then it grows to full-blown praise to God. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's posture of faith allows her faith to grow, and we see it in her actions as she sets off to visit her relative Elizabeth. It's faith in action. Visiting Elizabeth, God blesses her faithfulness with more affirmation, and her faith grows. So church, there's a time for seeking understanding, and Mary's not rebuked for having a faith that seeks understanding, but then there's just a time for trusting in God's word, even when we can't see how it makes sense. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Like a snowball, some of us may find that our faith grows if we stop sitting still and start rolling forward. There's a time for faith that seeks understanding, but there's also a time to just stop cross-examining God's word and just simply start trusting in it. Fourth and last, God is always faithful to his promises, even the more miraculous and unbelievable ones. As Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. Said differently, he's able to bring to pass all that he has promised. We see in the text that he is faithful to the promise that he gave to Zechariah. We know what he does for Mary also, miraculously conceiving in her womb by the Spirit's power, God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the eternal Son breaking into the world through his humble servant. But we know We know that Luke 1 is so much bigger than just Zechariah, Elizabeth, or even Mary. In the big picture, Luke 1 isn't about Mary at all. Mary merely plays the role of supporting actress. Luke 1 is the announcement that the time has come for God's faithfulness to his grand redemptive purpose. It's the announcement that though humanity fell in sin in the garden, God is faithful to his promise to send one who will crush the enemy's head. It's the announcement that God is faithful to his promise to bless all nations through the family of Abraham. It's the announcement that God is faithful to his promise to David to raise up one from his line to reign on the throne forever. 
It's the announcement that God is faithful to his promise in Isaiah 9 to make glorious Galilee of the nations, that from there the light will shine when a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And again, it's promised that he will sit on the throne of David and reign forevermore. We could go on. But Luke 1 is here so that we can see that God is faithful to his promise to send a king, the Messiah. And the angel's announcement is that now the time has come for the king to enter the world. And the miracle of the virgin conception is that God, the eternal son, is becoming God in human flesh. And by putting on flesh, he is entering into the world to set at course his forever reign, his kingdom. Already, we see by his birth announcement that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He comes miraculously, yet humbly, to a nobody in Nowheresville on his mission to set the world right. Of course, church, we know We know that the baby in the manger is going to be the body on the cross broken for us in our place, taking in his flesh the punishment we deserve, dying the death that we deserve. And then that same body would be placed in the tomb. But praise God, when the women went to the tomb in Luke 24, that body is nowhere to be found. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And still, now, and still in that now risen body, Jesus comes to his disciples in Luke 24, 44. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that he is the promise of the Old Testament, that all of it points to him. See, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's shorthand for all three parts of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he says it's all about him. So don't miss this. When we read the Old Testament, we don't read it like a Jewish person would. We read it like Jesus does. And Jesus says that his promises, that its promises are fulfilled in him. So the point of Luke 1's announcement of the coming baby is so Luke can get on to telling us about the crucified Savior who rose from the dead as our victorious king. The point is God is faithful to his promises and they are fulfilled in Jesus. The gospel is the announcement of good news. But it is good news that calls for a response. It's good news proclaimed in order to bring about the obedience of faith and repentance. If you're here today and you've never submitted your life to King Jesus, then my plea to you is this. Don't be like those that the book of John tells us about when it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
But instead, be like the close of that verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted in the grace of Jesus, this whole season, the whole season cries out to you to see Christ the Savior. Every song that we've sung calls to you to trust in Christ the Savior. Don't be so surrounded by the good news of the gospel and then just persist in your unbelief. Turn and trust in Jesus. But for the rest of us this morning who have already heard the announcement of the good news of Christ the Savior and have already turned to him in faith, my ultimate plea to us is this. Let us walk out of here out of here once again, even if for the 10,000th time, let us walk out of here in awe of Christ the Savior. Once again, stirred up in gratitude that God has been faithful to all he promised. And knowing that, we can be assured that the work accomplished at the first coming of Christ, God, God will be faithful to see that work to the end when he closes the curtain on history and all believers experience the bliss of our salvation fully and finally realized. Let's pray. Father, in all of the hustle and moving around of these days, Lord, help us to pause and reflect on the wonderful wonderful grace of God the Son putting on flesh and coming to die on a cross for our sin. Father, help us to be in awe at that. Help us to pause before you and worship you for your grace. For you have not left us in our sin, Lord, but you have provided in Jesus forgiveness and atonement. Father, help us to not lose sight of that by it being so familiar a message and help us to rejoice in that. Father, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.